Would you join me as we pray? Gracious God, we thank you for the way that our hearts have been opened just a little more. The doors are a little bit wider through beautiful song, through the ways that you use uh, piano and guitar and voice, and all the elements of worship here this morning, the lights and the trees and the artwork. God, it is all such a gift, and we are so privileged to step into this space as a means of hearing from you, and that's what we want. And so whether we feel very, very close to you right now, whether we feel very far from you, we know that you are with us. And so we acknowledge that. We invite the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to come and speak powerfully during this time. Use your broken servant to speak and to lead and use all of our hearts for your glory. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, again, I want to welcome you. I'm so glad you're all here. I do not normally sound like an anti-smoking advertisement, <laughs> just so you know. Uh, I'm thinking about going to narrate some movie trailers after today, so if you have any ideas, come talk to me. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, it's great to be together again in worship this morning. And we're in the second week of Advent, so you can see over to my right, to your left. Last week we talked about sight, and this week we are talking about taste. We're going through this series called Coming to Our Senses, talking about the way that our senses, the five senses, come into play in some very familiar Advent texts. And today we're talking about taste, and this one was a bit of a stretch to try to find in our scriptures, but it's there. One of the pastors at our teaching team meeting this week pointed out uh, two of the main definitions of taste that might resonate with you. They did with me. Uh, the first definition of taste is actually tactile. When we taste something, when we try that first cup of coffee in the morning, make sure it's right, and we're working on a soup and we taste a little bit of it, we're experiencing it. It's an experiential term. We use we're getting the flavor in our mouths. We're getting the sweetness, the bitterness. That's one way to talk about taste. Taste. Another way to talk about taste has to do with proportions. So when you uh, go to a really fancy restaurant and order a very nice bottle of wine, then theoretically you want to taste that before you have the whole bottle put before you. So you have a taste. You have a proportion of the larger thing. So one is about experience. One is about proportion. Both of these definitions of taste come into play in our texts today. Jesus is teaching about the bread of life. Appropriate that we talk about the bread of life on Communion Sunday. But he's not talking about bread, just bread. And the people that he's speaking to really miss this. He's talking about his kingdom. But in order to invite people into that conversation, which is a big one, which is really complicated, really broad, he has to let them sample it. He has to let them taste it first. So in a way, taste is part of Jesus' strategy today as we open up the scriptures and look at them together. And when we talk about the kingdom, which we're going to talk about a lot this morning, a definition we've used here in the past that you might find helpful is that the kingdom is where God's rule and reign are abundantly clear. There's no mistaking the rule and reign of God in his kingdom. And one of the ways we're going to try to get at this today is to talk about something that none of us particularly enjoys talking about, our brokenness, our sinfulness. This is one of the chief ways that God expresses his kingdom to us is when we hold out our brokenness, our experiences of being fragile people before our God. So if you want to write down a thesis statement for today, it goes like this. A taste of our brokenness creates hunger for the kingdom. A taste of our own brokenness creates hunger for the kingdom. So let's just jump right into this, this text. You've got an outline in front of you in your bulletin. An outline implies there are things worth writing down. Sometimes that's true, sometimes not. Our primary scripture lesson is from John's gospel, and you won't hear a lot about John's gospel during Advent. Why is that? 
John's Gospel is the only one of the four Gospels that pretty much skips everything that has to do with Jesus' birth. John's Gospel is the one that begins with this wonderful introduction. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It starts out with this kind of cosmic, ethereal introduction of Jesus. And so John totally skips over what the other Gospels include, the genealogies, his birth in a manger, all that kind of thing. But it's interesting that what John does is convey the same thing the Gospels who include the birth narratives do. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the incarnation. He is God come to be with people. John communicates that much more poetically, I would say, than the other Gospels do. And he does this with a really interesting term that if you've been around church, you're probably familiar with. And it's to say that it's earth-shattering is really not an overstatement. John uses the term, I am, as a way of Jesus' introducing himself to people. Jesus keeps using this phrase, I am. And that would have been earth-shattering for both the religious and the irreligious people that heard him talk. For the religious people, I am was God's name for himself. If you grew up in the Jewish tradition, those would not have been words you just uttered. Those would have been words that people didn't say. They had other words to refer to God so that the I am didn't have to be uttered. It was so holy. This goes all the way back to Moses' encounter with God in Exodus chapter 2. He says to God, who are you? Who should I tell the people I've been talking to? And God says to him, tell them you've been talking to I am. So the fact that Jesus uses this phrase multiple times early on in John's gospel means that John isn't playing around with this. He's getting right to the point that this is the Son of God. This is Messiah. Irreligious people, and this is just a theory I have, when they heard these words spoken by Jesus, it was like a hush fell over the room. It was like the hair stood on the back of everybody's necks. Because when someone makes a claim that's actually true, we kind of know it, right? We kind of recognize it emotionally. And I think that's what's happening here when Jesus says to these big crowds gathered around him, I am. So he draws all these people in, and right before our passage today that I'll read for us in a moment from John 6, Jesus has fed 5,000 people, and he's taken a walk across the water of the lake. So his miracles are drawing people to him in droves. His popularity is at an all-time high. And so instead of sort of drafting off of that, Jesus starts to do something interesting. He starts to, about, starts to talk about the bread of life. And he does this as a way, again, to give people a taste of what he's actually about, of what the kingdom is actually about. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 6. We'll come back to the Advent text we heard a moment ago, but we're going to start now in John 6. And I'm going to begin reading from verse 47. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Uh, I had some time to count this week. Jesus uses the words bread and either the word life or living five different times in those four verses in our text today. So ten words he spends talking about either bread or life. And the interesting thing is the word that he uses for life is one of two words that the Greek would have used. There's bios, which is just our normal bodily functions. It's what you would go to a doctor to have cared for. That's bios. That's not the word Jesus uses here. He uses the word zoe. Zoe is a different thing entirely. The way I would talk about zoe is it's the life that we all long for. Zoe has to do with the spiritual life, not just living, breathing, eating, going to work. It's about deliverance from sin. It's about freedom. 
And today, we're going to connect it to this idea of it's about life in the kingdom of God. It's about life in the way that God intended it to be. Now, here's where it gets really, really interesting for Jesus' audience. They think he's talking about bread. Like, they think, like the loaf of bread in front of me here on the table, that's what he's talking about. They think that that is what he's proposing to them. That's what he's offering to them. And it makes sense in a way, is right before they've had the feeding of the 5,000, people have eaten bread together. But throughout John's gospel, the theme of bread keeps coming up, and people always respond to it the same way. They always say, okay, give us the bread. That's not the point. That's not what Jesus was getting after. The bread is not the point. I want you to do something for me. On your outline, I want you to write, write the word bread, like on the left side of the page. Just write the word bread. And then on the other side of the page, give a little space in between the two phrases, I want you to write the phrase, I am. So bread on one side of your page, I am on the other side of the page. And in between the two words, I want you to write the greater than symbol, remember this, the greater than symbol, pointing toward I am. I am is greater than the bread. It's this, not that. It's I am, not the bread. The bread is the taste. I am is the full meal. The people keep asking Jesus for bread, and ironically, right in front of them is the full meal. Is God himself. I am. They don't need a taste. They don't need the bread. They need all four courses. And this is so helpful, I think, because broken people like you and me need to be reminded that it's not the bread. It's the I am. That that's what we're supposed to be after. And I want to give us an example of this, but before I do that, I want to pause and ask just a couple of questions. And these are for my own heart as well. When am I most prone to focusing on the bread? What are the moments in my life, what are the stages of my day where I'm simply paying attention to, I got to go here, I got to do this, I got to make sure I buy this? When is it really hard for me to turn off the idea that I just need to be focused on the bread, the basic thing in front of me? This happens a lot at Christmas time, right? Like we hit this adrenaline rush as a consumer culture. We get a shot in the arm on Black Friday. That adrenaline high continues all the way through Cyber Monday, Cyber Week now. And we don't lose that high until midnight on December 24th. And in the midst of all of that, are we willing to stop and ask the question, what am I hungering for? Am I hungering for bread? Am I hungering for wrapping paper? Am I hungering for tape? Am I hungering for gifts? Or am I after something else? One of the things I think will be helpful today is that we'll share communion together, and we will literally have an opportunity to take in the bread of life, to be with the I am Jesus at table together. We'll share communion. That's one way to create space to push through the bread and get to the I am. Another way is simply to be here, to worship together, to do this regularly, to be generous in the midst of a highly consumeristic society is another way to do this. My point in saying all this is we need to cultivate an appetite for the kingdom an appetite for the kingdom, a kingdom appetite. And if you're like me, you can hear that and go, that's great. Like, what, what does that even mean? Like, how can I even have that? Jesus is beckoning us to step into Zoe, into real life, life in his kingdom. He wants us to hunger for the I am, not just for the bread. And I think the example that we can take is actually the example that the Fletcher family read for us about Jesus' earthly dad, Joseph. Now, we don't know much about Joseph, but we know that he came from a Jewish tradition, and it's very likely that he would have heard words like Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. That would have resonated with Joseph. He would have grown up around things like that. He would have grown up around the concept from Micah 6, 8, that God is a just God, that God cares for the orphans and the widows and the oppressed. 
He would have known those things from his core. Unlike many of us, he didn't have to go back and reverse engineer that. So his foundational convictions, his core appetites, are for the kingdom. That's the premise that I'm leading us into here. And we see that played out when he encounters the angel. Matthew's gospel describes Joseph as a righteous man who cared about Mary, his fiancée. And when he learned about her pregnancy, he was faced with a dilemma. He wanted to spare her the shame and the scandal that that would have caused in their culture. And so following the rules of his culture, he had a plan in his head. But then something came up and threw all of that into chaos. He had a dream of an angel speaking to him, like, like the Fletcher's read for us. And the central message of that dream is something that if you hear nothing else today, I hope you hear this. Do not fear. Do not fear. That was spoken to Joseph in a moment of crisis, and it can be spoken to you and I. I don't know about you, but I probably need that every day. Do not fear. This is the word from God as he speaks into the lives of real people. The angel goes on to tell Joseph about the full meal, about Zoe. He doesn't use the word Zoe, but he's talking about it, about the life that only Jesus brings by saving people from their sins and allowing them to live the kingdom way of life now. So here's the clashing realities, right? Like if you were to draw these two things on the opposite side of a page. Joseph has the cultural reality of what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to turn Mary away. He's supposed to break off the relationship with her and basically send her to fend for herself. But then he's facing a kingdom reality where the angel captivates his dream and gives him something else to think about. And so what's he going to do? We know in the moment... His appetite aligns with the kingdom. He has tasted something of the kingdom, I think, both through his upbringing and now through this encounter he has with the angel. And so he hungers for the right thing. He's after more than just the bread. He wants the full meal. And so in the moment, he's able to make a decision for the full meal, for the kingdom. Now, you could argue that his decision was kind of easy. Like if an angel popped up to you or I in a dream, I would imagine that would be hard to say no to. I mean, I can rationalize a lot of things, but that would be kind of hard if an angel popped up and said, go do this, and I'm trying to think of something else to go do. And I think it's a fair question to say, like, well, did that make it easy on Joseph? Did that make that decision less ambiguous? I would say yes, but not quite. We live in a world with a ton of ambiguity, in part because we're obsessed with choices. The logical conclusion of having so many different choices is we end up being ambivalent about the choices in front of us. And so when we see a story like Joseph's, we might think to ourselves, oh, that's simple. There's no ambiguity there. Just follow what the angel's telling you to do. I think there's more to it than that. I think his hunger already aligned with what the angel was talking about. The soil of his heart had already been tilled so that when this moment came up for him, he didn't have to waver. He didn't have to think real hard about it. What helps us address ambiguity is clarity about what really matters. What helps you and I address ambiguity is clarity about what really matters. And so when Jesus speaks about the bread of life, about living with him in the real world, kingdom living, he's talking about it not just in terms of us, people who show up to church on Sunday, but he's talking about it for the sake of people that we don't even know, that we're barely connected to. Turn back to the John passage with me, and let's look at verse 51, and you'll see what I'm talking about. This is Jesus talking, John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. For the life of the world. That echoes the most famous passage in John's gospel, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only son. 
Only Jesus could make a claim like that to rescue the whole world, to know who he's going to save, to draw them to himself. And when our desires, when our appetites, when we hunger for the kingdom align with his vision for the world, then it's not just good for us. It's good for people that we don't know yet. It's good for people who are dying, desperate, to hear about Zoe, to hear about real life, who are tired of the bread, and who want something different. That was Joseph's situation. And you know what he realized? He realized that God's Zoe was available for his unborn child and a helpless mother. God's Zoe is available to those who are most vulnerable in our midst. He tasted the kingdom. He was ready to receive those kingdom instructions because he hungered for the right things. So what about us? If it's this, not that. If it's I am, not the bread. What do we do? It's not just our moments of crisis that reveal our foundational convictions. It's what we put into our hearts on a regular basis that shapes us. It's what you and I put into our hearts on a regular basis that shapes us. So, very practical way that I try to get at this. Uh, I get up really early on Sundays, I drive to my office, and as I'm driving there, I fire up my Bible app on my phone, and I'm streaming the scriptures. I'm listening to some British dude read the scriptures as I drive. And the reason I do that is so that when I come here to serve and lead with you guys, my foundation is the word. And that's a conviction that God has given to me, and I'm grateful for it. It helps me cultivate a kingdom appetite when I'm with you. And I would really miss it if I didn't have the opportunity to do that. When we know things in our hearts, when we know the word in our hearts, like when Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, it informs how we approach those moments when we get to speak of the kingdom. It informs how we'll approach things that will give others a taste of the kingdom. If you believe that the first will be last and the last will be first, and if you live your life in such a way that shows you believe that, you know why we do the YMCA gift baskets, and you know why we do pantry packs. It's because God cares us to call for the least of these. That is a kingdom value. Parents, when you're driving in the car with your kids, it's a great opportunity to talk to them about the values of the kingdom. Now, you may not think of it that way, but what if you were able to talk to your kids about mercy? What if you were able to talk to your kids about justice? about hope, about where they saw Jesus during their day. Some of you already do this. I know you do this, but I'm just encouraging you that the calling of the kingdom, the appetite of the kingdom, always makes us swim upstream. But what helps us address ambiguity is clarity around what really matters. And it's what we put into our hearts on a regular basis that shapes us. So what is going into your heart and my heart on a regular basis? And how is it shaping you? A taste of our brokenness creates hunger for the kingdom. We've seen this played out in two different ways so far. We're going to hear a third way. Broken people are asking Jesus for the bread. They're missing the point. And so their brokenness is kind of showing them toward the kingdom, but they're not quite there yet. Joseph wrestles with the brokenness of that decision he had to make between the culture and the kingdom. And now we're going to look at a third way with Peter, kind of the hero, I think, of John chapter 6. If we follow the timeline of the Gospels, right before John 6 is when uh, the disciples are with Jesus and he walks on the water. It's an amazing moment. Over in Matthew's account of that moment, Jesus is walking on the water and Peter gets out and tries to walk with him. He steps out of the boat, he takes a few steps in the water, this is Matthew 14, but the text tells us that fear grips him as he looks around and he sees the wind, he, he feels the wind on his face, he sees the waves, and he literally starts to sink under the weight of his brokenness. It drags him down. 
and Jesus rescues him and restores him. Now, the interesting thing about John's gospel is, according to the timeline he gives us, about a day has passed since this moment. Like, barely 24 hours has passed since Peter is going down into the water and Jesus rescues him. So in this conversation that I'm about to read to you, picture it like Peter's clothes are still wet from Jesus having rescued him. Listen to this. This is the end of John chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 66. And before this, Jesus has put out a huge challenge to the crowds. He's raised the bar significantly for them. And it says, because of this, many of, the, of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. And so Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. It's a powerful moment. Let's look at it very briefly, line by line. First, in verse 66, Jesus thins out the crowd. Religious leaders that are starting something typically don't do this. But Jesus wasn't starting a religion. He was starting a movement. The bar is set at a great height. Jesus tells people, you need to eat of my flesh, drink my blood. And many people have looked at Jesus and said, I can't do that, and they walked away. Anytime you're in a position of leadership for something that matters for the kingdom, and this can be a business, this can be your family, this can be a church, when you're doing something that really matters and people turn away from you, people turn away from the mission because it's too complicated, it's too hard, you bet it's hard not to take that personally. And Jesus, although he is totally perfect and totally without sin, I think he feels the emotions of this moment when the disciples come to him and they start walking away and his line to them is, do you also wish to go away? And I don't think he's sad for himself. I think he's sad because the disciples have looked at Zoe, looked at life at the kingdom and said, no thanks. And they've left him. And that's hard. But here's where Peter's brokenness really comes into play. Because Peter has had a Psalm 34 experience. He has tasted and seen that the Lord is so good, so very good. And because he's painfully aware of his own failure, his clothes are still wet, reminding him of his failure, he is the perfect guy to stand out in front of all the other disciples as a spokesman and to say, Lord, who else are we going to go to? To whom else will we go? I think what he's saying is, Jesus, we are going to starve if we go anywhere else. We are going to be hungry if we go anywhere else. You are the bread of life, and our appetites will be satisfied nowhere else. This is the part that really hits home for me. Peter's appetite for the kingdom can't be satisfied elsewhere, and he knows it. He knows it. Do you get that feeling sometimes when you're trying to satisfy an appetite, when you're trying to do something for yourself, trying to scratch an itch, as it were? You're doing it apart from the Lord, apart from Jesus, apart from the things you really value, and you know it's not going to work. You're not going to be able to scratch the itch. You're not going to be able to feed yourself. This is the great lie of pornography. This is the great lie of infidelity. This is the great lie of eating too much. This is the great lie of self-medication through drinking and drugs and all kinds of stuff because it's never going to satisfy, ever. Brene Brown is a sociologist and she made this observation in her first TED Talk that we cannot selectively numb. People cannot selectively numb. In other words, when we choose to dull ourselves and dull that appetite for the kingdom by trying to scratch our own backs, by trying to meet some need that we think we can do through porn or food or whatever, 
We don't just dull that appetite. We dull our whole lives. We cannot selectively numb. Peter's brokenness creates space for him to rightly align his appetite with the kingdom. His appetite is aligned with the kingdom. That's what he's declaring at the end in verses 68 and 69. This is a declaration of intent. This is what he's about. Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the bread of life for the whole world. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows that we will resist him. We will resist his kingdom. We will resist those appetites for the kingdom until we remember how broken we are and how desperately we need him to guide us. So a taste of our brokenness creates hunger for the kingdom. Sinful and lost people like you and me come to the communion table, and we break bread and we drink juice, and as, as, as is our tradition here at Bethany Eastside, we pray and we confess together before we come to the table because this is a time for us to lay before the host of our table all that is broken, all that is keeping us from these kingdom appetites. And so I'll invite us to that in just a moment. I'm going to invite our communion servers to come forward and I'm going to share a quote from C.S. Lewis as we close. This is from Mere Christianity. Our faith is not a matter of hearing what Christ said long ago and trying to carry it out. Rather, the real Son of God is at your side. Bethany Eastside, the real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his zoe, into you beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live man. And the part of you that does not like it is still tin. Let us come before our God and confess these parts of our hearts and get ready to receive these elements. Would you join me as we pray? God, you are our gracious Savior, and in your grace, you point us toward you. You point us toward the I am, toward the bread of life, real life. And so as we prepare to receive that, now at the communion table, as we model again what you modeled for us, we ask that you would hear us as we confess, as we confess silently, as we hold out to you the dark corners of our hearts where we desire your light. It may hurt, it may scare us, but we ask that in these moments you would fill us with the Holy Spirit's courage to confess. Hear us as we confess silently. that only Jesus Christ offers. May we taste his forgiveness, taste and see that the Lord is good now as we come to the table. Would you set aside this time? Would you set aside these elements, bread and juice? Would you do so to bring glory to yourself and to show us a kingdom way of life in your world, which you died to save? We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Jesus kept going up to people and talking about the bread of life. 
And people thought he was talking about bread. And in a way he was. Because we need bread. We need to be sustained. But this is the bread that I offer on behalf of Jesus Christ in his name, in his stead, for the people of God, for the purposes of God. The scriptures tell us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he was with his disciples and he broke it. And he offered it to them saying, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this and remember me. In the same manner, after supper, he offered them a cup, one of the cups of the new, co- uh, the cup of the new covenant, he said. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul reminds us in one of his letters that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ until he comes again. And so you are welcome at this table. We have uh, elements available for anybody with allergy concerns. Those are in the small baskets. They're gluten-free crackers. We're happy to offer those to you. Come forward and grab a piece of bread, grab a cracker. And when you're ready, return. when you return to your seats and when you're ready, Please take the bread. And then in a moment, as is our tradition here, we will share the cup together. We'll take it all together at the end. The servers are up here to welcome you to the table. They will remind you, this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. Come forth and receive the bread of life. Come forth and receive his zoe. Let us worship God together.